Good morning. I bring you greetings from High Point Baptist Church in Austin, Texas, and from our elders. It is a tremendous joy and pleasure to be with you all, and I've been looking forward to this time together. Um, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, so if you have a copy of Scripture, I invite you to open your copy of Scripture to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, I'm going to pick up in verse 11, and once you find that, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word? Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, I'll read through verse 21. This is God's word for us this morning. And he entered Jerusalem, that is Jesus, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask for grace. We ask for grace to hear from you and not from man. I am weak, but you are strong. I need help and grace. Be with my mouth. Father, show us Christ from the pages of Scripture by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. As Dr. Greenway say, said, I went to the University of Florida. I grew up in Florida. I'm from Puerto Rico. We moved to Florida when I was almost eight years old and grew up in Florida and had a lot of family that we came and to be a part of. And one of the family members was a cousin. This cousin is now retired and he lives in Orlando, Florida. And he was building a house on a lake in Orlando. And as he was building the house on the lake, he was explaining to me what his landscaping was going to be like. He said he wasn't going to landscape just like normal landscaping. Instead of the typical landscape, everything in his yard would be fruit-bearing. He would have fruit-bearing plants and trees and bushes. And I couldn't wrap my head around it. But he has built the house, and he and his uh, family live there. And we go there every summer, and just this summer we were there, and it's amazing to just pick a mango from the backyard and eat it fresh, or take an avocado or some kind of citrus fruit. He has this little bush or tree where he has this little berry called magic fruit. And when you take that little berry and you put it in your mouth, everything tastes sweet. You can put the magic fruit in your mouth and eat a lemon, and it tastes sweet. It's really quite amazing. As you walk through the yard and you see the grapes and the vines and you see all the kinds of trees, 
It's fascinating to see all the fruit-bearing things. But what do you do with something that doesn't bear fruit? See, not everything works out in a garden, does it? You uproot it. You remove it. You take it away. You burn it. That's what you do. You cast away what doesn't bear fruit. Fruit-bearing trees and bushes and plants are supposed to bear fruit. This is what we see in our text here this morning. Fruit-bearing fig trees are to bear figs. And when they're fruitless, they're good for nothing. And what Mark wants us to understand is the judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ on Israel's fruitless religion. And the way that he does that uniquely in his own gospel is by taking the cleansing of the temple and sandwiching it between the fig tree. So if you notice, as I read, it begins with the cursing of the fig tree. It goes to the cleansing of the temple, and then it comes back to the fig tree. The other gospel accounts don't do it quite like that. Mark is helping us understand that there's a specific judgment taking place on the people of Israel for their fruitless religion. And this is something that we have to understand. Jesus condemns mere external hypocritical religion as fruitless. And there's a message here for us this morning as well. There is a danger that we can be so caught up in religious activity that we do not realize that our religious activity is merely external or our religious activity is hypocritical, but God is after the heart. And Christianity is a heart religion. And when God has our heart, when we are pursuing Christ, when we're clinging to Christ, that relationship, that union, and that communion with Christ bears fruit. I want to walk through this passage uh, this morning in the time that we have. And I want to just show you two points here. Jesus condemns mere external religion, and then Jesus condemns hypocritical religion. Really, it's all hypocritical, isn't it? But look with me in verses 12 through 14. In verse 11, let me just give you a context. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Okay, Mark has him coming into the city for the first time. He comes into Jerusalem declaring himself to be the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. Up until this time in Mark's gospel, the messianic secret has been imposed. No one is permitted to tell who Jesus is. Now the secret is over. And Jesus walks in. And he himself allows himself to be declared the promised son of David, the anointed king from David's line that would restore Israel to its prominence, to its prosperity, to its military might and power and national prominence. And so he comes in as Israel's king, and he, the first thing he does is he goes into the temple in verse 11, and he makes an assessment. He doesn't do anything. He just makes an assessment, which is really helpful. Some people are at angst in this passage of Scripture because they think that it goes counter to Jesus' character and nature is kind and compassionate and gentle and patient. Mark goes out of his way to help us see there's no emotion here attached to Jesus' actions. It is very purposeful. He goes in and he makes an assessment of the temple before acting, and then he comes back the next day and he acts. He doesn't just act out in anger. This is righteous indignation, but Jesus is purposeful. Everything Jesus does is with intention. And Mark is helping us see that as he develops this narrative. And so Jesus makes an assessment the night before. He goes back to Bethany, 
probably with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. That, used to, that seems to have been his base camp when he went into Jerusalem. But he goes back to Bethany. And then on the next day, he is going back into the city. In verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus is fully God, but he is fully man. And as fully man, he got hungry. And verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. We know that this was around the Passover time, and fig trees began to leaf and show their first fruits around March or April. And so Jesus is going into Jerusalem around the time of the Passover. He had gone with pilgrims all the way from Nazareth in Galilee to Jerusalem, and now they're going in the city. In the evening, they go out because everyone couldn't stay in the city. And so as they're going in, Jesus was hungry, and he sees this fig tree, and it shows the promise of fruit because it has leaves, and perhaps the first fruits of the figs are there. And so showing the promise of fruit, Jesus goes to it, and it says when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Mark provides his parenthetical comment that it wasn't the season for figs. And then verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever unto the ages eat fruit from you again. Here, what we have is a prophetic announcement of judgment. This is an acted out parable, if you will. And notice the fullness, the comprehensive nature of this judgment. May no one ever eat fruit from you again, literally unto the ages. This is a curse upon this fig tree that it will never bear fruit again. It is full, final, and comprehensive. In the Old Testament, fig trees and grapevines were images used to represent Israel both in fruitfulness and in fruitlessness. In Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Jeremiah eight thirteen. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. The cursing of the fig tree is an acted out prophecy, much like Old Testament prophets would do. The fig, the fig tree showed promise of fruit, but it bore no fruit. You see, in Jesus' day, Israel was busy with religious activity, but it was only external and it was fruitless. This is the point that Jesus is making. And as Israel's king, Jesus had the authority to judge Israel's religious activity. He had the authority and the right to judge their fruitlessness. But Jesus isn't just Israel's king, is he? Jesus is God's king, whom he has placed on David's throne, who's given authority in heaven and on earth. But Jesus is our king too, isn't he? Which means that Jesus has the authority to judge our religious activity. Jesus has the authority to inspect our fruit, if you will. And Jesus acted out prophecy, the cursing of the fig tree should serve as a warning to us, a warning to the church. We judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Friends, beware of practicing mere external religion, mere outward religious activity. This is something that's pretty common in our world. This is pretty common in our nation. And I would imagine this is pretty common in Texas 
where America is equated with Christianity. When I used to serve at a church in Indiana, just upriver from Louisville, Kentucky, it was amazing when you would read the obituaries, and when you read the obituaries, it would give everyone's clubs, the clubs that they were members of, and it would include church membership, almost as if church membership were a club. And in that context, you could never remove a member from the roles. They may have never come to church in 15 years, but you don't dare remove them from the roles. Do you see how we can tend to equate something like church membership with Christianity? Do you see how we can give people false hope that they're okay with Jesus just because we keep their name on a membership role? Beware of mere external religion. We have to constantly ask ourselves, on what is our eternal hope resting? Pastors, you have to constantly be thinking through, on what are you leading your people to rest their eternal hope? On their church attendance? Their membership? Their giving? Their volunteering? Their serving? What about you? Are you counting on the fact that you get up every morning at the same time and you read the Bible, you pray, you have your devotions, and you fast? Are you counting on your morality? You have a strong morality, therefore you should go to heaven. Or maybe your conservative voting record. Or maybe your liberal voting record. You see, our hope rests on nothing but Christ alone. And this is what Jesus is trying to expose in Israel's religion. They were counting on the busyness of their religious activity, as we'll see just a moment in the midst of Passover. And so I just want to ask you, on what are you counting to get you into heaven? On what are you hoping? Mere external religion may show promise of fruit, but it produces no fruit. And Jesus will judge his followers by their fruit. You see, Christianity is a religion of the heart, and out of a new heart flows an abundance of fruit. And so if you're asking yourself right now, okay, well, what kind of fruit should I be bearing? You're asking the right question. The New Testament talks a lot about fruit, actually. When the Jewish leaders were coming to the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing, John the Baptist didn't say, we're going to hit our baptism goals today. What did he say? You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. One of the first fruits a Christian bears, someone whose heart of stone has been ripped out and replaced with a heart of flesh that beats for Christ, someone who has the spirit indwelling in them. One of the first fruits that a Christian bears is a fruit of repentance. It shows that they're concerned about their sin. They hate their sin. They want to turn away from their sin. And they want to turn toward Christ. And they want to keep turning toward Christ. They want to make all wrongs right that they have done in their life. And the, the life of a Christian is a continual life of bearing the fruit of repentance. But the Bible also talks about the fruit of the Spirit, as you know. Christians are to be marked by love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, Right? But did you know that the Bible also talks about the fruit of light? We were born in darkness, and God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, so we no longer walk in the darkness. We walk in the light. And so Paul tells the Ephesians that they're to bear the fruit of light. To the Philippians, he says, you're to bear the fruit of righteousness. 
And the writer of Hebrews says that we're to bear the fruit of lips, a sacrifice of praise to God. Friends, do you understand that if Christ is in us, we will not look like the world. If Christ is in us, we will be a people who are repentant. The first time I went to Romania in the mid to late 90s, it was interesting how the Orthodox Church was trying to oppress believers there. And one of the ways that the Romanian gospel Christians distinguished themselves from the Orthodox Church was they were known as the repenters. I wonder, are we known as repenters? Are we known as those who see our sin and hate our sin and turn away from our sin? As those who want to walk in holiness? As those who are controlled by love? Those who are peace-making people? Jesus condemns mere external religion. Don't let your religious activity deceive you into thinking that just because you're doing something for Jesus, you're okay. Secondly, though, Jesus also condemns hypocritical religion. This is what we see in verses 15 through 21. Look at what Jesus does when he comes into the temple courts. It says, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, there's a lot going on here, but let me just help us understand. There was actually not some, it wasn't terrible what they were doing. In the Mount of Olives, they would have these money changers. Remember, these pilgrims were traveling from far distances to come into Jerusalem and to sacrifice. And so it was actually a service to them when they came out of town or from another even country and they came into Jerusalem for the Passover that they could just purchase the sacrificial animals there to sacrifice instead of having to bring everything with them. And because the temple required payment in a specific coinage and a specific currency, the money changers would provide that service. So the issue is not necessarily what was happening, it was where it was happening. So Jesus comes in and he just stops it. He turns the money changers' tables over. And notice he condemns both those who are selling and those who are buying. Even the seats of those who sold pigeons. Pigeons were the offering of the poor. And verse 16 it says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus had such reverence for the temple court. This is not the main temple area. This is just a temple court. And what we see is this is the court of the Gentiles. So we'll see in just a moment. So they've taken over the court of the Gentiles. Jesus doesn't even want them taking shortcuts through the temple to carry something to some other part of the temple court. Jesus has reverence for the house of the Lord. And then in verse 17, it says, And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written? This is a signal that Scripture is coming. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Whenever you read the New Testament and you see an Old Testament citation, I heard a pastor say this once and it was very helpful to me. Think of it as a hyperlink. It is written. Okay, here's a hyperlink. We're going to click on that hyperlink and that hyperlink is going to take you back to where it's originated, to its source. Well, what is that source? When we click on the hyperlink, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. You realize this is from Isaiah 56. Specifically, this is Isaiah 56 verse 7. Now, notice what Jesus says. Is it not written, my house should be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, if you clicked on that, that would take you to Jeremiah 7, and specifically Jeremiah 7, 11. 
Mark has put these two together to help us understand Jesus' grounds for what he has just done. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus teaching? Remember, he's teaching. What is Jesus teaching? Did you know that Gentiles were always welcome to worship Israel's God? In 1 Kings, when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verses 41 through 43, Solomon specifically prayed that when foreigners came to this place and prayed toward this temple, that God would hear their prayers. Of course, you remember Ruth, right? The Gentile that became a Jew. We see this. Anyone could turn away from their sins and turn away from their gods and become a worshiper of Yahweh. Men simply had to be circumcised and they would be included. The people that left Egypt, many Gentiles, many Egyptians left with them. So God's heart was always open to the nations. It was just as he was working with Israel as the model nation. Israel was the witness. Israel was the display nation as to how God worked through the world to bring a people to himself and fulfill the Abrahamic promises. And what the Jews were doing in Jesus' day is they had taken over the one place where foreigners could come to pray. You see what Jesus is saying? Their religious activity, their empty religious activity, had pushed out non-Jews. This was ethnic discrimination. It had pushed out the very people for which God designed this place to be, for anyone from any nation to come and pray toward the temple so that they would be heard. Then when you go to Jeremiah 7, you begin to realize this is Jeremiah warning the people of God that because of their covenant faithlessness, he was going to judge them and exile them. Jeremiah calls them murderers. They were evildoers. They were wicked. They were involved in all kinds of immorality. And then they would come to the temple and say, the temple, the temple. You see, Jeremiah 7 is judging Israel for their hypocrisy, for their hypocritical religion, for their breaking the covenant and for their immorality and their sin, and then coming to the temple and in their religious activity thinking they were okay with God. This is what Jesus is doing by putting these two things together. In their religious hypocrisy, Israel shut out foreigners from God's temple. And in their religious hypocrisy, they trusted in their temple worship rather than trusting in the God of the temple. And as their king, Jesus had every right to judge their fruitlessness. This act of judgment is looking forward to the year AD 70 when the temple will be destroyed once and for all. This is why Jesus will be killed. Look at verses 18 and 19. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. They wanted to kill Jesus because they didn't want their system messed up. The leaders didn't. You know what the irony of all this is? It was through the murder of Jesus on a cross that he becomes the foundation for the worship of all nations. Isn't that fascinating? In John chapter 2, when he records the cleansing of the temple, they ask Jesus, on what authority are you doing this? this? How, what, what right do you have to do this? Do you remember what Jesus said? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. 
by killing Jesus and by Jesus rising from the dead, he is the temple of the living God. He is a place where the glory of God dwells. And as he tells the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, the time has come where he is the focus and the place of worship. He comes to her and he asks her, where's your husband? She says, I have no husband. He says, of course you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. Hmm, you must be a prophet. And you know what she does? She tries to change the subject by talking about worship wars. You know, our people, we worship on Mount Gerizim, and your people worship on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. So who's right, you or us? Jesus says, you worship what you do not know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus says the Father is looking for true worshipers, those who will worship in spirit and truth. What does that mean to worship in spirit and truth? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying that the hour has come where worship is no longer about bricks and mortar. Worship is about a person, about himself. True worship is worship that is grounded and rooted and focused in everything that God is for us in Jesus Christ. By killing him, they made him the focus of worship. They made him the new temple. And so spirit worship, it's little s in John 4, it's us. Spirit worship is our response, our whole person response to the revelation of the Father that Jesus is the Christ. Do you understand that that's what worship is? Worship is our whole person response to the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the living God. He is very God of very God and very man of very man. And salvation is found in him alone for all nations. And so Jesus becomes the focus of our worship. That means that we must bear the fruit of the gospel because it is now in Christ through the preaching of the gospel that God is gathering the elect from all the four corners of the world. It is through the preaching of the gospel that God is gathering his people to himself in Jesus Christ. And as Paul tells the Colossians, this gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying as it is in every place. So not only must we bear the fruit of repentance and the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of light and the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of lips, but beloved, we must bear the fruit of the gospel. And that is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all peoples everywhere, calling everyone everywhere to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because there is no salvation outside of explicit faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the fruit of the gospel. And so I want to ask us a few questions here. Does our religious activity keep those people away that the Lord is calling to come to him? Does our religious activity, think of it this way, does our religious activity keep those people away who are different than we are from worshiping the living God? Let me put it in just one more way, just a different way. What we do when we gather together as a church and when we live our life as a church, does it say you're not welcome here? It's a very serious question, isn't it? Because that's what was happening in the temple. 
They had just taken over the court of the Gentiles and essentially were saying, you Gentiles, you're not welcome here. Worship is about us, and this is our religious activity. Keep in mind that our discrimination may be inadvertent. It doesn't have to be conscious. And we may discriminate in any number of ways, ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, educationally, generationally. Consciously, we may look down at people who come into our gatherings. We may avoid them unconsciously. We may not even know they're there. So what we do and what we say communicates either you're welcome to worship with us or you're not welcome to worship with us. Ethnically and culturally, just think about that. Texas is a very diverse place. Houston is the most diverse city in the United States, surpassing New York City several years ago. How do we welcome people that are different than we are into our gatherings? I mean, just think about the lingo that we used. Just the way that we talk, the, the, the lingo, the jargon that we use. Brother pastors, can I just encourage you? Even some of the humor that you think is funny in Texas, for our African brothers and sisters, they have no clue what you're talking about. I mean, just, just th- we, we have to be consciously aware that God is at work gathering a diverse people through the preaching of the gospel. And there is a way we can preach the gospel that God's voice will not be heard. You understand that? We have to try to remove ourselves as much as possible and preach Christ. We must preach the biblical text and not ourselves. And we have to understand all of us are encultured in a variety of ways. I mean, think about generationally. The big thing in Austin is to reach the young college population. There is a way to gather a church where we say to our senior adults, you're not welcome here. And there is a way that in some of our rural churches, we are telling our young people, you're not welcome here. Take that skateboard out of our parking lot. We have to stop and think carefully what we're communicating. Educationally, the manner in which we communicate, the manner in which we sing, the manner in which we preach is communicating something. Socioeconomically, how we dress, how we talk, even the architecture and the decorations that we have in our gathering spaces is communicating either you're welcome or you're not welcome. Take music as just one example. Music tends to be divisive because we all have such strong preferences. But think about if your approach is to target a specific demographic and you've done your research about what kind of music that demographic likes and you set up your music to reach that demographic, you're saying to one demographic, you're welcome here, but you're saying to another demographic, you're not welcome here. If it's too loud, the senior adults are not gonna care for that. The parents with young children are not gonna bring their children to have their eardrums ruptured? What about the style? If we're just always fighting for our own personal preferences, what are we saying to other people? Everything is culturally expressive. And so we have to take into account what are we saying? What are we communicating? Musically speaking, 
We should try to welcome all people without partiality. This is a hard thing to do. So let me just encourage you. How can you be welcoming to people? I want to encourage you to emphasize congregational singing. Emphasize congregational singing. And root the lyric of what you sing in the gospel and in scripture, not the latest Christian radio hit. Seek to represent various cultures of Christians throughout history and even in your congregation. When you go and you worship with our brothers and sisters in Cuba, it's going to sound different. You may actually sing Amazing Grace. You may sing in Christ alone. It's just going to sound different, and that's okay. But we have to understand we are not the first Christians to come along. And we have to help our people, especially our young people, understand that Christianity is historic. And so we have to remind them of that. We can't just cater to one cultural style or expression. Use single, singable melodies and singable lyrics, things that people can learn from the young and to the old. And as you value historic musical traditions, write your own new musical expressions. Our tendency is to demand that everyone else sacrifice their preferences so that we would be comfortable. And when we do that, we say, I'm welcome, but you're not welcome. Or what we're actually saying is, you're welcome here so long as you check your preferences at the door and you cater to my preferences. The gospel demands that we all sacrifice our preferences for the good of others. We should all be serving one another. Imagine the joy that flows out of the knowledge that we're all seeking to welcome one another by sacrificing our preferences. So let me just encourage us, those of you who are not pastors or music leaders, let me encourage you as a congregation, be willing to sing old music like really old music, not like 1960s, but like the 1600s or the 1500s, and in some cases, the 1300s. But, but we be willing to sing old music. Young people, let me encourage you, be willing to sing old music. And let me just encourage you, older people, be willing to learn new music. Be willing to learn new music. And to all of us, let us joyfully engage in all of worship. If worship is a whole personal response to the truth of what God has revealed himself to be in Jesus, we should be filled with joy, responding out of the fullness of the Spirit to who Jesus is. And let's go out of our way to welcome all peoples into our gatherings and into our churches, not compromising the truth of the gospel, but being welcoming. Can I encourage you to do some simple things? When you go to church this Sunday, stay around after the service and find the people that are visiting and you don't know and welcome them. Practice Christian hospitality. Encourage your churches to be welcoming churches. Jesus has the authority to judge our worship, whether it's fruitful or fruitless. And as our King, Jesus also has the authority to condemn our religious hypocrisy. Again, from Jeremiah 7, 11. Beware that you're not just so religiously busy that you're using your busyness to hide your sinfulness as Israel was doing. I just want to be as frank and as pastoral as I can because this is just the world that we live in. You can't sleep with your girlfriend and your boyfriend and then come to church and just pretend like everything's okay. You can't defraud your neighbor or cheat on your taxes and then come to worship and say, everything's okay. You can't be abusive toward your wife or your children and then come to church and pretend everything's okay. Our God is a consuming fire. 
And he has given us everything that we need for life and for holiness. And as we cling to Christ and as he works in us, transforming us to look more and more like himself, we will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and we will be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Hypocritical religion bears no fruit and it keeps unbelieving people away from worshiping the true God. Let me close with this, verses 11, uh, verses 20 and 21. It says, and they, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is a full and final judgment against Israel. And as God's king, Jesus had the authority to condemn their mere external hypocritical religion. But he's our king too. And he has the right to judge our mere external hypocritical religion. Here's a question that I want you to leave with this morning. Examine yourselves. Are you fruitful? It's not the only foundation, right? If you read 1 John, the, the most important foundation is, are you trusting in Christ? Are you believing in Christ? And if you're believing in Christ, is the Spirit bearing fruit in your life? Jesus has every right to judge our religion and our religious activity. I want to close by reading to you from John 15. Because Jesus puts it all together for us here in a different fruitful image. I am the true vine, and my Father is a vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, we cannot manufacture fruit. Fruit is produced only when we cling to Christ and rest in the Spirit, working in us. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's how we abide in Christ. His words abide in us. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Friends, Hypocritical religion is fruitless. It wins no one to Christ. It is blasphemous to our living God. May we be marked by repentance, by humility, by love, by joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the pursuit of righteousness, and the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of love.